but the Christians are more ready and more bold to speak the truth without the phobia, without the fear of being arrested. They said to themselves, they said in prayer, and they said before all these people, bring on death, bring on persecution, bring on the chains. I will stand firm with the Lord. Let me ask you a question, church. Are you standing firm for the Lord this morning? What does it take for you to move off of center? What does it take for us to move away from the place that God wants us to be? This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel. Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Uh, junior, uh, Philippians chapter 1, and after you have found that, if you would please stand with me as we read our text again. Philippians chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 12. Paul says, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that in my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice." For I know that this will turn to my salvation through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning that you would teach us your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Boldness. That is the word that I would use to describe Paul. And that is the word that would ultimately be used to describe the the Philippian believers. Boldness, church, is defined as fearless in the face of danger. It was boldness, it was fearlessness in the face of danger that caused Peter and the other apostles in the book of Acts to look at the tribunal and say, we would rather obey God than obey man. When they were commanded to stop preaching, we'll let you out of prison as long as you stop preaching this Jesus Christ. And it was boldness, it was fearlessness in the face of danger that caused the apostle Paul to say, or the apostle Peter to say, we would rather obey God than obey man. 
It was fearlessness in the face of danger that caused a, a, a monk to, in 1521, when Martin Luther was called before the, the Roman tribunal and he was commanded to recant of all of his writings. Martin Luther preached that salvation was by faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And he was commanded by the Roman council to recant of everything that you said. And it was fearlessness in the face of danger that caused Martin Luther to say, unless you can convince me by scripture or sound reason, my heart, my mind is captive to the word of God. Uh, to go against scripture is neither right nor safe. And then he ended with this. He said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. It was fearlessness in the face of that danger that caused Martin Luther to take such a glorious stand. And one such boldness could be seen in the great Puritan preacher, John Rogers. This great towering saint was born in 1505 and lived just 50 short years on this earth. Rogers attended Cambridge University and upon graduation became the rector of the Holy Trinity Church in London. John Rogers was a minister, he was a Bible editor, he was a husband, and he was the father of 11 children. In 1534, Rogers took the post as the chaplain to the English merchants in Antwerp. And while there in Antwerp is where Rogers met his wife, and he met what came to be his best friend and noted Bible translator and martyr, William Tyndale. Rogers helped compile what has been known as the Matthews Bible, which was the first English edition of the Word of God that was authorized for distribution by Henry VIII himself. After the death of Henry VIII on January 28, 1547, his only legitimate son by his third wife, Jane Seymour, Edward VI, came to reign on the throne of England when he was just nine years old. And as, Edwards, as Edward ascended to the throne, he welcomed reform. And he welcomed such Puritan leaders as Nicholas Radley and Thomas Cranmer as they were planning a new era of Christian worship within the church. However, all of those plans would come to an abrupt end because in January of 1553, Edward began to show signs of tuberculosis and would eventually succumb to this disease that many times is fatal. After Edward's death, a power struggle erupted and Lady Jane Grey became ruler of the throne, but because of the battles and the struggle for power within the family, she only ruled for nine days before she was overthrown by Mary Tudor. Mary was Edward's half-sister by Henry VIII by his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. History would remember Bloody Tudor by her name, Mary Tudor by her name, Bloody Mary. She became known by that name because in just the three short years that she reigned on the throne, she executed more than 300 Christians because they dared say that salvation was by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And Mary began to bring back the doctrines that Edward had purged and that, and that the Reformers and the Puritans saw as unbiblical. And even though Mary was bringing these doctrines back into the kingdom and into the church, these men were bold and their mouths would not be shut. 
Rogers preached a message that was directly assaulting the doctrines that Bloody Mary was bringing back into the government and into the kingdom and into the church. And because of that sermon, he was examined and he was put under house arrest. His employment as the chaplain and the rector ended and his church office stripped of him. Six months later, a new bishop of London had Rogers transferred to Newgate Prison. And in the meantime, Mary was preparing for Parliament, her quote-unquote crackdown laws, and offenders were being put in line so that the coming legislation could be practiced and its bitter lessons taught to the people who dared preach the doctrines of grace. Rogers waited in Newgate Prison for one year without a trial. On January, in January 1555, he was brought before Mary's hatchet man, a man by the name of Bishop Stephen Gardiner. Rogers was declared a heretic at that moment because he refused to preach and to practice the philosophy and the practice of transubstantiation. The belief that the Lord's Supper, that the elements of the Lord's Supper are miraculously changed into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And Rogers was subsequently condemned and burned at the stake. But while Rogers was waiting for execution, he was treated with unnecessary, unnecessary cruelty by the government. Rogers requested a, a meeting with his wife, of which was denied. Rogers was asked to recant, of which he denied. And on February the 4th, 1555, Rogers was marched to the stake to be burned alive. And as he was marching down the street to be burned alive at the stake, his own wife and children were forced to line up in the streets and watch as their father and their husband was taken off to die. And one of the 11 children, the historians say, was so young that he was still being nursed by his mother. And as Rogers walked along the street, knowing what his end was going to be, the faithful were there lining the streets with him, encouraging him to be strong in the Lord. And even his children were standing there who understood what was going on. Even his children stood there encouraging him, Dad, stand fast in the Lord. Don't give up, Dad. Don't quit, Dad. Stand fast. In fact, the historians say that the encouragement that Rogers received going down that street to his death was so great that the event did not seem like an execution, but seemed like Rogers' wedding day. And John's final conversation was a witness of itself to John's victory in Christ. The sheriff came up to Rogers as he was being tied to the stake, and he said, Will you revoke your evil opinions? on the sacraments. To which Rogers replied, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The sheriff woke up and said, you are a heretic then. And Rogers said, that shall be known in the day of judgment. The sheriff said, I will never pray for you. Rogers says, but I'll pray for you. And with that, the flames began to rise up at Roger's body. And as the flames arose upon Roger's body, Rogers could be seen in the midst of, this is an extraordinary, folks. Rogers could be seen in the midst of that fire with his hands in that fire as if he was washing his hands in cold water. Signifying that my life and my heart have been washed clean by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Roger stood there tied to the stake. The flames began to engulf his body and he began to recite from memory many of the Psalms. And as flames covered his body, historians tell us that there was no screams of agony coming from Roger's mouth. Only Roger's reciting the Psalms and lifting his arms toward heaven. And finally, as the flames made their way down the, down the arms of, of Rogers to where his arms were finally gone, his earthly life was over on February the 4th, 1555. And with such boldness, John Rogers entered the presence of the one who gave himself for him and gave him that kind of boldness. It, if it had not been, church, for the fearless boldness of Peter then that would have devastated the other believers. Had Luther not had the fearless boldness that he had, it would have been devastating for the other believers in Germany. Had John Rogers not had the fearless boldness that he had, it would have been devastating for the church, for the believers in London. Outside of Smithfield, which was where John Rogers was burned at the stake, that was not part of London. It's actually part of London now. But the area of Smithfield was considered the ghetto, if you will, of London. And that's where they buried all the heretics. John Owen is buried there. John Rogers is buried there. Isaac Watts, the great songwriter, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the King of Glory died, he is buried there. And if it had not been for these men's bold stand for the Lord, these men looking at fear in the face and standing firm, it would have been devastating for other believers. And had the Apostle Paul not had fearless boldness that he had, it would have been devastating for the other believers in Philippi. And it was with that boldness that the apostle said that the believers of Philippi had obtained boldness. In fact, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 14. He says that the believers there, that they are much more bold to speak the truth without fear because of how they saw Paul react to his circumstances, of how they saw God protecting him. Their courage was renewed and their zeal and boldness intensified. In a very literal sense, his strength became their strength. His example touched them. His boldness became their boldness. Because of Paul's courage, it caused those other believers to be more courageous. Paul said in verse 14, to speak the truth without fear. The word fear in the Greek is the Greek word phobos. It's where we get our English word phobia. But Paul says here that they were, that they were brave and they had aphobos. They had no fear. It only takes, listen church, it only takes one brave person through the help of the Holy Spirit and the impact of that one faithful life to revolutionize and, event and energize an entire church. It just takes one that will look fear in the face and with Holy Ghost given boldness say, I will stand. Cowardice, folks, is contagious. But so is courage. In fact, I like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. Jesus says, listen, you want to know who to fear? You want to know who to fear? Fear the one that after you die has the power to cast you into hell. That's the one you need to fear. 
The psalmist said, I've put my faith in you. I have put my trust in you. Therefore, I will not fear what man will do to me because the fear of man brings a snare. And Paul says, because of my bonds, because of my chains, because of my imprisonment, not only have we seen many soldiers that I've been attached to come to know the Lord, but the Christians are more ready and more bold to speak the truth without the phobia, without the fear of being arrested. They said to themselves, they said in prayer, and they said before all these people, bring on death, bring on persecution, bring on the chains, I will stand firm with the Lord. Let me ask you a question, church. Are you standing firm for the Lord this morning? What does it take for you to move off of center? What does it take for us to move away from the place that God wants us to be? Do we look fear in the eye and have the boldness that can only be given by the Holy Spirit and say, come death, come persecution, come what may, I will stand bold for Christ. Listen, it just takes one. It just takes one to have that type of boldness to stand for the Lord. And so we've seen Paul's circumstances We've seen Paul's colleagues. And on the back of your bulletins, the outline, number three, we see Paul's conflict. We see Paul's conflict. Paul now explains to the church that his conflict and trial was not just with those who hated the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was particularly the Romans, but his struggle also was intensified because, because of those who supposedly represented Christ began to malign him. Notice, if you will, with me, verse 15. Where Paul says, some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul had his fair share of detractors. Listen, folks, the church has always had detractors within its rank that wants to malign its leaders. One of the most discouraging uh, experiences in all the ministry of a servant of God is that of being falsely accused by people that call themselves brothers or sisters in Christ. To be maligned by unbelievers is expected, but to be maligned by believers is sad and not expected. And it goes without saying, church, that the sting of having a ministry misrepresented, slandered, or unjustly criticized runs deep. And that is what Paul faced in Rome. And he gave two reasons why some of those preachers out there were maligning him even as a brother in Christ. Look again in verse 15. He says of two reasons, envy and what? Strife. Please note, Paul does not condemn them because their doctrine was heretical. They would have been considered in their doctrine, they would have been considered orthodox. Because they, they, were not, they would not be considered false teachers because they were preaching the truth of the gospel. The problem was not what they preached, but the problem is why they preached it. Paul says they preach with, number one, they preach out of envy. And the word envy means a desire to reprive others of what is rightfully theirs. To wish that they did not have it. Or they had it to a lesser degree. Envy, church, is a sin in Scripture that is listed in Romans chapter 1, verse 29 with greed, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and gossip. So God considers envy a pretty serious crime. Envy is closely related to jealousy, and it seems that Paul's detractors were both envious and jealous of Paul. But Paul says it was not only envy 
but it was also strife. Strife, church, is really the spirit of enmity. Envy leads to competition, which leads to hostility, which leads to conflict. These people that herald the truth, or anybody who heralds the truth, always has their critics, don't they? If you're going to be someone that's going to herald the truth, you're going to have your critics. Calvin was kicked out of the pulpit after only two years because of his refusal to allow the libertines to partake of the Lord's Supper. Jonathan Edwards was voted out of his pastorate after 22 years with a 90% vote to kick him out. Charles Spurgeon suffered severe discouragement, even to the point of depression, from leaders within his own denomination. And Paul's, part of Paul's conflict was not only with the government of Rome, not only those people that hated God, the one and only true God, but Paul's conflict was with those who were preaching Christ. They were envious of Paul and maligning his character. And for whatever reason they gave for feeling that way about Paul, they considered Paul to be a threat to their ministry and their following. The natural result of the envy and strife led to church arguments and a, and a, a disdain against Paul. Has that kind of envy ever bitten you? Perhaps you've learned of the advancement of someone else instead of you. It could be a colleague that becomes successful at work and is promoted instead of you. It could be a person that's asked to teach a Sunday school class instead of you. Whatever the specifics, someone is being recognized and praised instead of you. And instead of being content where God has you, seeds of jealousy begin to well up and grow in your heart. And church, listen, if those seeds of jealousy are not killed, then envy will lead to strife, and the natural result of that strife will be conflict. But it started with a seed of jealousy. And you will go from thinking ungracious thoughts about them to speaking and acting ungraciously toward them with malice. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus said of the Pharisees, this is how they compensated for their, all their works they do to be seen of men. That's what jealous people do, right? They do what they do in order to be seen of people. And that's how Jesus classified the Pharisees. And Paul said in Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. That's pretty clear language, isn't it? Set them apart. Set them out. Show them. Mark them. Distinguish them. Be discerning about them. Mark them that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrines ye have believed. And do what? Avoid them. Avoid them. Why? For they are such as serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the simple of the hearts of the simple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, For ye are yet carnal. Why? Because there is among you envy and strife and divisions. You are carnal and you walk like unsaved people. Listen, church, carnality, envy, strife, division, contention, jealousy, those of all fruit, they're all fruits of the flesh. And if we have those, we're walking as ungodly people. We're walking literally as unsaved people. And these type of attitudes that Paul lists here in Corinthians should not be named among God's people. 
And then James says in James chapter 4, verse 6, but he giveth more grace, wherefore God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our eternal life in Christ, church, is our greatest asset. And then notice what Paul says at the end of verse 15. He says, some preach of goodwill. Just like envy and strife, goodwill has to do with motives. And Paul rejoiced in the fact that there were preachers out there that were preaching the gospel with the right motive. Wanting what was best for others. And folks, listen, apart from the spirit and motives of love, nothing done in the quote-unquote name of the Lord, no preaching, no teaching, no service, no matter of orthodoxy, no matter how, much, how impressive it is, is truly acceptable to Him. It amounts to nothing if it's done with strife or vainglory. If we do what we do out of a seed of jealousy for others, then what we do amounts to nothing. And Paul says in verse 16, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Those that preach Christ because of selfish ambition do so with the intent, Paul says, of aggravating and intensifying Paul's distress. But while the motives of some of these preachers were because of, because, because of selfish ambition and Paul anguished in a Roman, in a Roman prison, Paul's distress was not because he was in that prison. Paul's distress was because Christ was being maligned because of the hypocrisy of those that were preaching Christ, yes. But they were preaching Christ with wrong motives, therefore they were preaching Christ hypocritically. Paul was not looking for sympathy. Paul was not looking to defend himself. Paul's intent and purpose was to glorify Christ and always point to Him. So that as the believers... There in Philippi saw Paul point to Christ, then they too could look on Christ. And as they look on Christ, they will be able to face then their own afflictions head on with the peace of mind and the spirit of forgiveness, knowing that they've truly triumphed in Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Paul says, But the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. While Paul acknowledged that there were those people that preached the gospel with wrong motives, with selfish ambition, he also recognized the fact and he rejoiced in the fact that there were those people that were preaching the gospel out of love. Love for Christ, love for the words, love for the word of God. And one of the things that made the church of Philippi loyal to Paul was that they knew that he was set for the defense of the gospel. Love for God, folks, and envy for others cannot coexist in the same heart at the same time. Okay? Envy for others and love for God cannot coexist in the same heart at the same time. When envy moves in, love moves out. When envy moves in, love moves out. And what the church of Jesus Christ needs is believers that will stand with those who worked to make the cause of Christ known, not work against them. Whether it's the one that stands in the pulpit, whether it's the one that stands in the classroom, or stands in their home, all believers need the assurance that other faithful believers stand with them. 
Listen, church, there's always people out there in the world that are going to try to malign you. You need to understand and you need to live in the assurance that people in Emmanuel Baptist Church are going to stand with you no matter what anybody else says. Paul had that confidence that no matter what anyone else said, these people stood with me. And the Philippian believers had the same confidence. No matter what happens, no matter who says what against us, we know that Paul is going to stand with us. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people that no matter who does what or who says what, I am going to stand with the right? Or are you the one that has a selfish agenda that's only worried and interested in advancing your agenda? Or are you one that out of love for Christ will, will, and love for people will stand with those that proclaim the truth no matter what the envious detractors might say? Paul says, yeah, there are those people out there that preach the gospel. They're telling the truth about the gospel. But they're doing it with the wrong motives. Therefore, that makes them the enemies of the cross. So we see Paul's condition. We see Paul's colleagues. We see Paul's conflict. Number four, we see Paul's condition. Paul sums up his attitude towards these self-absorbed, narcissistic hypocrites who are only interested in promoting themselves with praise that the gospel is being preached and, and, and that in the way the sovereign God determined it. Notice verse 18. What does Paul say? What then? Stop right there. Paul recognized that there was a larger picture here than just what maybe he saw. Paul said that even those people, those envious people, who were actively preaching the truth and the gospel. Listen, Paul rejoiced in the fact that people were actually being saved. And this was almost in the first part of verse 18. It was almost as Paul was saying, so what? Some preach of pretense. Some preach of envy and strife against me. So what? So what? Notice verse 18 again. Every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is what? Christ is preached. You see, church, that was Paul's focus. Not his personal insults, but that Christ was preached. Paul's attitude was not that he was exonerated, but that Christ was exalted. Not that he was maligned, but that Christ was magnified. Not that he was punished, but that Christ was praised. Not that he was hated, but that Christ was honored. Not that he was persecuted, but that Christ was preached. What a testimony to the Philippians that Paul had. And when he was in prison, he was rejoicing. These envious preachers were putting on a mask and they were stepping out on the stage. And when the show was over, which is what hypocrites do, when the show is over, they step off the stage, they take the mask off, and they return to the envious, narcissistic people that they are. And Paul, in this text, rips off their mask of pious religion and reveals the rotten pretense and their foul deception. But notice Paul's focus in the middle of verse 18. Christ is preached. No matter what, the priority of Paul was the magnification of the Master. He was not preoccupied with escaping suffering. Paul had a much higher agenda. His concentration was on that the name of Christ go forward. For the Apostle Paul, it mattered very little what happened to him. 
For Paul, it mattered very little what was said about him. All he longed for was that Christ be glorified. That was Paul's only concern, was that Christ preached. That's why at the end of verse 18, Paul says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. In spite of his fiery trials, Paul could rejoice because Christ was being preached. John MacArthur says, when the seemingly secure things in life begin to collapse, when suffering and sorrow increase, believers should be drawn into the ever-deepening fellowship with the Lord. What about you? Do you rejoice in the midst of your sufferings when you, even though you see the name of Christ being advanced? Or do you care more about your reputation than you do your Redeemer? God places us, folks, in different circumstances and different trials facing us. But listen, whatever the circumstances of life and how they confront us, we can rejoice in the Lord as we see our adversity advancing the gospel. That's what Paul was concerned about. He was concerned not with his, uh, well, not with his punishment, but Paul was concerned that the gospel was being advanced, and he praised God for that. We can ensure that we will not collapse in our infliction as long as Christ is being known. We need to reflect the same attitude that Paul reflected in the second chapter of Philippians, starting in verse 4, where Paul says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You have the same mind of Christ. And then Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Paul says, I can face trials. I can face discontentment. And I can be content. And I can stand firm for Christ because I can do all things through Him. Then notice verse 19. This was the summation This is the key, folks, to Paul's resilience. Verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. This is the key to Paul's resilience. This is the key to the Lord being Paul's priority. Because Paul was only concerned with the sovereign purposes of God in his life. Paul's joy Paul's contentment, Paul's conviction was in God Himself. His conviction and His joy was not in the ones who maligned Him. And it was not in the ones that preached the Gospel for vanity's sake. His conviction was in the sovereign purposes of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. Paul says, my salvation. Now Paul is not talking about Paul. He's not talking about his regeneration. He's already saved. He's talking about his deliverance from prison. Paul knew that one way or the other, he was going to be delivered from prison. Either he was physically going to be delivered from prison, or he was going to die, and he was going to be eternally uh, delivered from prison. But either way, Paul had the hope and the knowledge that whatever happens, I am not going to sit here. I've sat by the deathbed of, of, of dear saints of God as they begin to contemplate leaving this earth and going to their heavenly home. As, they, as most people do, they contemplate healing. When I sat by the bedside of dear brother Ray Smith, he contemplated healing, and we prayed for healing. 
But I looked at Ray very early in the stage of his, of his sickness, and I said, Ray, I said, you belong to God Almighty. You are a child of God. And so I'm here to tell you, brother, he, I said, your deliverance is absolutely guaranteed. And I'll never forget this. Tears began to well up in Brother Ray's eyes, and they began to trickle down in his face. And he says, oh, preacher, he says, I am so, great. I am so glad that, that I know you, and I am so glad for the grace of God. He says, because I know that if God takes me out of this shell, that I will stand before him whole, and I will be delivered. And see, Paul knew. Paul knew, come death or come release, he was going to be delivered from that prison. Because Paul knew, like Brother Ray Smith knew, that his hands were in the hand, his life was in the hands of the one who overruled everything. Paul knew, I know, you know, that our life, our hands are in the hands of the sovereign God who controls it all. That's why, as Mark said this morning, that I can say to anybody with confidence that the time of your birth and the time of your death has been preordained by God, folks, and you are invisible until God's done with you. And when God's done with you, you don't want to be here anyway. And guess what? We don't want you here because you'll make all of us miserable. So get on out of here and go to heaven. Paul understood that. And Paul says, I know, I know, verse 19, I know that all these things that have been following me will turn out that I will be delivered. I know that. There's no question. Listen, church, whatever you're going through this morning, I can promise you, you will be delivered. Whatever pain you're suffering today, you will be delivered. Whatever trial you're facing, you will be delivered. Whatever turmoil is in your family, in your life, in your job, you will be delivered. And even in the midst of trouble, whether it be prison or being maligned by others, Paul knew that God was in charge of it all. Is that how you live your life? Do you know, do you live in the knowledge that no matter what happens, your life is in the sovereign hand of God? We could have no joy at all if we lived our life believing that the things that happened to us were by random chance. But we can lay our head on our pillows each night and rest knowing that our sovereign God has it all under control. In Psalm chapter 33, Verse 11, the psalmist says, The counsels of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of His heart to all generations. In Psalm 135, 6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that stands Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, understood what many Christians don't understand, but he said, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay or stop his hand or say unto him, why are you doing it this way? Paul says in Romans chapter 9, that, listen church, you and I don't have the right to question what God does. That's under the purview of none of our business. 
God says, if I want to make one vessel of honor and I want to make one vessel of dishonor, that's my business and I don't have to give you a reason why I do it. But listen, I'd much rather leave my life and the things that pertain to my life in the hands of an almighty, sovereign, loving God than leave my life in the hands of an evolutionary process of random chance. And in Psalm 115.3, the psalmist says, but our God is in the heaven and he had done whatsoever he hath pleased. God is sovereign. Absolutely, in every way, God is sovereign. But Paul brings in, in verse 19, the wonderful truth of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Look what he says in verse 19. Paul says, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation. I know my life is in the hands of God. I know I'm going to be delivered. What does he say? What's that prepositional phrase? Through your what? prayer. Paul lived in the knowledge. Paul lived in the comfort of God's sovereignty. But he also lived in the knowledge that God uses his people to fulfill the, pro- the sovereign purposes that he has decreed from eternity past. This is what we call the theological terms second causes. That God not only decrees what will happen, but God decrees how what will be will be. In other words, God not only made a decree of what will happen, but God also made a decree of how he will bring it about. God, before the foundation of the world, decreed certain things would take place, but he also, before the foundation of the world, decreed that I'm going to use this to bring about my sovereign decree. And what does God use? God uses our prayers in the lives of his people to bring about what he decreed in the eternity past. And all this is done by the sovereign good pleasure and the will of God. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, Solomon says, The lot is cast in the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Church, do you live your life under the comfort of knowing that God is under, that you are under the sovereign control of God? Do you live your life in the comfort of Romans 8, 28? That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Let me submit to you this morning that you can only live under the comfort of Romans 8.28 if you realize this morning that from the cradle to the grave, God is in control of every aspect of your life. God never steps off the throne. God never loses the control. God never stops caring. And Paul says, that's how I make it. Is because I know that I'm going to be delivered. And I know that God has used your prayers to bring about my deliverance. For the Apostle Paul, life was not lived under the role of random chance. For the Apostle Paul, Life was lived under the role of the absolute sovereignty of God. That's why Paul had absolutely no problems with saying, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. As believers, if we, as we look at our life, we look at our struggles, we look at our trials, and we look at those times when people try to malign us, If we look at those things under the lens of how it makes me feel, if we look at those things under the lens of exoneration, reputation, then we will not have the mind of Christ and we will not have the mind that the Apostle Paul had. 
But what we need to do is we need to look at all those things, the trials of life, the struggles, the times when people try to malign us. We need to look at those things as Paul did and only be concerned in our life as, that Christ is magnified. Then our perspective on those things will dramatically change. Do you look at your life through the lens of the sovereignty of God? Or do you look at, the, do you look at your life through the lens that you're in control and that you have to help God that you have to give God ideas God it'd really be nice if you would do this let me give you this idea somebody came up to me one time and said you know what I would be able to serve God a lot better if God did this 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 and this for me and I looked at him and says no you'd be able to serve God better if you just submitted to the fact that God does this 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 and this for you listen we don't serve God better when he changes our circumstances for the better we serve God better when we look at whatever situations he's brought in our life through the lens of the sovereign hand of God that's how we serve God better folks that's how we remain faithful, that no matter what he brings in our life, we look at it through the lens of God. We look at it through the sovereignty of God. And there were two main reasons why Paul could look at all of his circumstances of life with joy. Because first of all, no matter what happened to him, he was going to be, Christ was going to be magnified. He was not concerned with the fact that he was being maligned, but he rejoiced in the fact that Christ was being preached. And that caused him to rejoice. And the second, that no matter what happened in Paul's life, he knew that they were brought in, brought about by the sovereign hand of God. If we could just see everything, church, from the vantage point of God's glory, it would fill our life with much greater joy. Paul could sit in a Roman house under house arrest chained to a Roman soldier and he could rejoice because he looked at those things this is from God this is for the advancement of the gospel and no matter what people do no matter what people say my conscience is clear before God the gospel is being advanced I know I'm going to be delivered because I'm in the hands of a sovereign God so therefore I rejoice is that how you look at life? Or do we sit back in the corner and pout? That's our propensity though, isn't it? To pout. But we need to look at life through the lens of Christ being magnified. Because God's in control. Father, we thank you this morning for these wonderful truths. Father, we praise you today that you are in absolute charge. Father, we praise you this morning that no matter what takes place in our life, that you are the one that controls it all. And Father, that's not cliche. That's the only way to live life is with the knowledge that you are in charge and that you dispose all things after the counsel of your will. That from the beginning to the very end, you have decreed it all. And Paul could rejoice that no matter what happened in his life, 
He saw life through the lens of God's sovereignty. He saw life through the lens of Christ being magnified. And Father, that's what we need to do. Help us, Father. Because, Father, we all, we all struggle with this, I'm sure, of seeing things that happen in our life, whether it's trials, whether it's being maligned by others. We, we all struggle with seeing those things through the lens of, of God. But Paul didn't. Paul saw his struggles. Paul saw the fact that others were talking ill about him and spreading rumors about him. Paul saw that through the, through the eternal perspective of God because the only thing that he was concerned about was that the gospel was being advanced. Father, that should be our view. That should be our goal is to just want the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ advanced. And when it is, we rejoice and we'll continue to rejoice Maybe you would say this morning, Pastor, I've never bowed the knee before Christ. That's Lord, I've never been saved. If that be you this morning, then I would encourage you and beg you to find me before you leave today and we can show you from the Word of God what it is to be saved. And maybe you're here as a Christian and you would say, Pastor, I, I don't look at life from the, through the lens of eternity. I struggle to look at life through the lens of Christ being magnified. I'm more concerned with my exoneration than His exaltation. I'm more concerned with my malign being maligned than I am with Him being magnified. We could all say with you that we struggle with that as well. So if that be you, God to give you the wisdom and the discernment and the grace to see life through his lenses. And folks, it's something that's learned. It's, it's not something that comes on you automatically. It's, it's a process of going through these things and, God, and finding God faithful in the smaller things so then when the bigger things come, you find the, the God that was faithful in the small things will also be the God who's faithful in the bigger things. It's a process. Help us, Father, to stay firm and faithful to the process. Father, we love these dear people and we want God's best for them. And I pray and trust today that the Word of God was clear, that you were magnified and you were glorified and honored. And we ask you, our Father, that you would dismiss us with your blessing. And as we go from this place, that we would go representing our Lord who gave himself for us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. 
You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.